Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. And this is the show that takes you inside the unexplained, the unbelievable, and the bizarre and um, tries to find an answer. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> we look at a lot of them. Most of them are dumb. Yes. A lot of dumb answers. Okay. Uh, but this week, nothing will be dumb. This is the most serious of topics, Caroline. Ooh, did someone die? What happened? It's even better than that. Caroline, what if I told even, you... Even better than someone dying. What if I told you that there were places in this world where you could step right back in time? Like Colonial Williamsburg? Or uh, yeah, sections <laughs> of the Gettysburg battlefield. But no, this is even more exciting than Colonial Williamsburg. I don't know. Colonial Williamsburg is popping. Carrie, I'm going to need you to move past... The Colonial Williamsburg. We'll take a trip to Colonial Williamsburg. Well, I've been telling you, we'll take a trip to Colonial Williamsburg. Sean, I asked my parents when I was a, a small child, still in single digits, to go to Disney, where all small children want to go. And they took me to Colonial Williamsburg. And you know what? I lived my best life there. So. Well, maybe. Take that. Maybe the experience was so authentic for you because you actually experienced... A time slip. Who knows? A time slip? Yes. You see, Caroline, um, there are stories of people taking a wrong turn, say, it almost always happens after a wrong turn, and you end up years or decades or, or centuries in the past. So what you're telling me is that time does not keep on slipping, 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 into the future? I think I'm legally obligated to tell you at this point that time is a flat circle. <laughs> Wibbly wobbly timey wimey. Very much so, yes. And so what we have with these time slip stories, as they're called, is you got people who say basically that they um, were in the past for a little while. And they're back now. I got better. <laughs> Uh, and this is without use of any time machine or anything like that. They just turn a corner and it's 1700s Colonial Williamsburg or whatever. That's correct. No one's casting Paul Walker in this thing. I'm almost <laughs> certain that he was in a time machine movie. We'll have to check IMDb. There's no DeLorean. There's, There's no, no uh, uh, TARDIS. Hmm. Uh, what you've got is, yeah, again, people usually in these stories getting lost. Mm -hmm. And then, um, so they're already disoriented in a way. Well, we'll get, we'll get into it, Carrie. Um, <laughs> but do you want to hear the stories first? Sure. My first question though, is do they ever slip into the future? Like actually, or is it always the past? Uh, there was, <laughs> I didn't even take extensive notes on it because it was so, <laughs> boy, I don't want to use the word silly, uh, but I, I will I'll tack one on at the end for you. How's that? I've got one future slip that was mentioned. Okay. Sounds good. But I think we have to start with the granddaddy of these. The queen mum, uh, if you will, of all uh, time slip incidents. And that would be uh, the experience that two proper academic uh, English women had at um, the Palace of Versailles in, uh, in France. Versailles. So this is one of the Louis palaces right or yeah. a few of them i think there were a bunch of louis at one point there were a ton <laughs> france just couldn't get enough louis for a while and then they didn't care for louis uh, at all mm -hmm. for a little while there um but louis the i want to say 14th uh, built versailles 
mm-hmm. which is a giant, absurd, you know, opulent palace. It's like the Breakers times ten, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they signed the treaty that ended World War One there. Um, also, when King Louis was there, it was the walls and floor were probably covered in hot shit. Um, yeah, we'll talk about that another time. The scary situation that you would find yourself in if you actually went back in time and uh, experienced any of the medical or cleaning Hygiene, problems yeah. <laughs> these people had. Royal courts were not what you uh, are picturing. No, and they smelled terrible. Yeah, they sure did. Um, <laughs> but they've cleaned up all of the piles of... Uh, human excrement and things now uh, it would be an then. antique so yeah that's true that's <laughs> a that's a you don't need to turn that shit into gold no so two ladies went to visit versailles in the year uh, 1901 and these were uh, charlotte ann moberly and her friend eleanor jordan or jordan i'm not sure because it is a french um story and that's definitely a french name so maybe she said george jordan i don't know but i'm <laughs> like go- target yes but i'm gonna go with jordan um that said i will be butchering many many french names throughout this uh story so if anybody happens to be listening uh in or from france i can only apologize <laughs> so moberly uh, her dad had been the headmaster of winchester college so, you know, kind of an academic family. And she followed right in his footsteps and became the principal of St. Hugh's College, which was, um, I mean, a, a residence hall, really, uh, at Oxford University mm-hmm. for women. It's an all-women's uh, residence hall. And she was a little bit overwhelmed in her duties because she was pretty young. And they brought in someone to help her. And this someone was Eleanor uh, Jourdain. Mm-hmm. She'd written a couple of textbooks, uh, Jordan. She ran. She had run her own school for girls at one point, and she also tutored English children uh, in France from an apartment that she had in Paris when she was, you know, kind of splitting her time. Sure. Um, and so it was decided these two ladies should go um, spend some time at that apartment together, get to know one another, and um, you know that way they could work better together when when uh, when the the new crop of girls came in, right? Interesting. So from what I can tell, it was during this kind of getting to know you period that the ladies went to go see Versailles. Oh, that sounds like a nice little day trip. Yeah, it's a nice little um yeah, play date for these two uh these two <laughs> new friends. But you know, they said they didn't actually think too much of the palace hmm. as they were wandering the grounds. Not impressed. Nope, not impressed with the palace itself, so they were like, let's take a, a walk around. If, if Versailles isn't just one it's not just the main palace. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a bunch of satellite um, grounds and buildings. It's a huge, sprawling complex. And so they wanted to go take a look at the Petit Trianon. The small... House, I think. Something like small house. Small house. It's not house, because that would be maison. But um, it, this is basically a manor house. <laughs> I, but the, thing, the word for palace is, I think, palais. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know what this, but it seems to mean like castle or something. Because the um, Petit Trianon is a manor house on the grounds. And the uh, Grand Trianon is a, a, a big palace. Hmm, maybe it's like the their grounds. pool house. Yeah. Um, I'm we, not impressed with this giant palace. Let's see the little giant palace. Well, the uh, so a little bit of history. The Petit Trianon was built in the 1760s by Louis XV. Okay. The middle Louis. And uh, then it was I love a Louis sandwich. And then it was given by the um, Louis the Sixteenth, the last Louis, to his then nineteen-year-old bride Marie Antoinette to live in. 
Okay, so this little trinon or whatever went through the human centipede of Louis. Yes, ended up on Marie Antoinette. Yep, uh, in the uh, in the time when she was queen and uh, still had a head uh, atop her shoulders, mm-hmm. uh, because things didn't go well for for poor Marie Antoinette. No, no, and we can get into that story <laughs> a different time. Honestly, the French Revolution is a horror story. Oh, truly, yeah. Almost more so than On a history. On both sides, kind of. Oh, it, yeah. Well, all the way through it. Um, everyone, it's really bad. <laughs> it's a really scary story. Um, so maybe we could do that sometime, but it's also way too complicated for me. So. <laughs> Period. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. So uh, maybe I can do it sometime, is what you're saying. Uh, I think we might have to work. We will work together, uh, bring in <laughs> friends who uh, are good at, at history yeah i do know some french revolution scholars just casually i don't know you might (laughs) so they wanted to go see uh marie antoinette's little little house sure but uh as they were walking there they came across the uh, grand trional and that was uh, closed to the public they couldn't walk past that to get to it so now they had to take a roundabout way um now they had brought a guidebook Mm mm-hmm I don't mean like an, an official park pamphlet or something. This was like some uh, uh, a guidebook for the area they had bought, you know, at a bookstore. Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of thing you have a ton of on our bookshelves, actually. Well, they're all the weird state ones. So they're only guidebooks to like strange cryptids and uh, weird statues. Yeah. And what else could you need? I don't need anything else. They thought they could use this guidebook to uh, kind of find their way around uh, to where they wanted to be. Um but they missed the turn. See, they should have taken the Allée des Deux Trianons, the road of two Trianons. <laughs> Trianon. That's a that's a devilish conspiracy right there. But they missed the uh, turn and they headed down uh, an alleyway. Wrong way. So not the Allée, the other Allée. That is very, yes. Uh, now, at that point, uh, Jordan says they passed an old deserted farmhouse that had a big, heavy, old-fashioned plow outside. Um, now, later on, Moberly didn't remember that, but she did, did remember at this around the same point, uh, an old woman uh, shaking a white cloth out of a window. Sure. Um, All seems on the up and up so far. Well, but what's interesting is Jordan didn't remember the old woman uh, either. Uh, but both women agreed that at this point they started to feel very tired and faint. Okay. They rounded the next corner and um, tried to ask to uh, what they said very dignified looking officials for help. Uh, these were weird <laughs> guys. Uh, they were in grayish green <laughs> coats uh, with, with little three cornered hats on their heads. Cute. And uh, the ladies said, uh, are we going the right way? And they, they uh, didn't answer them at all. They uh, uh, kind of sternly looked at them and, and just gestured uh, to continue on. Hmm. Kind of snapped an arm, almost like a salute, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point, Jordan said she saw a cottage. They passed a cottage. And uh, in the doorway, she saw a woman holding a jug out to a, uh, a little girl. Mm-hmm. Like a jug of water. Um, and poured it on the little girl's head. They weren't moving. They were frozen. Huh. Uh, she said, like a tableau vivant. Which means? a tab. So a tableau vivant, and this is something I learned while I was researching this story, is uh, something that was very popular with French aristocrats at this time and earlier. Um, major 19th century pastime for very rich French idiots, uh, where they would pay people to, uh, you know, do uh, like the living painting in Arrested Development. You would uh, have them arrange themselves in a scene. 
And you just, just stand there? Why why not have them act, you know, like do something? No, it's better to have just a, like a still art installation. Oh, yeah. So much better. And so they would have this at like parties and stuff. Wow. A, that's a, a living picture, a tableau vivant. That sounds like a friggin' banger right there. Let's, let's go drink some champagne, do some tableau vivant. <laughs> it's going to be a party. Absolutely. I love the Tableau Vivant um, 97, by the way. It's just such a great bottle. Idiot. Full-bodied red. <laughs> I know you love a full-bodied red. <laughs> That's fun. Moberly didn't see that lady in the little girl in the jug. She never reported seeing that. She never saw it. Um, but she did. Did she see the cottage? No. Okay. But she said around this time, um, everything looked unnatural to her. Um, actually, what she said was, everything suddenly looked unnatural, and therefore unpleasant. Even the trees seemed to become flat and lifeless, like wood worked in tapestry. There were no effects of light and shade, and no wind stirred the trees. Weird. So it's almost like being on a giant soundstage, like Truman Show style? Yeah, or like stepping into a painting, right? Right. So they reached the edge of a, uh, a small wood at this point. Near um, what they recognize as the uh, Temple de l'Amour. Temple of the... Love. The Temple of Love. L'Amour. Oh. Mm-hmm. This is where Marie Antoinette would have uh, prayed personally. And uh, they find a man sitting at a, a garden kiosk there. Mm-hmm. There's a little garden, a little, little kiosk, and there's a man sitting, uh, sitting there in a cloak and a big shady hat. And they described his features as uh, most repulsive. Oh. And his expression, odious. Oh, they did not like this guy, huh? Nope. They described his complexion as, quote, dark and rough. And as he slowly turned his face toward them, they could see that it was covered in smallpox sores. Oof. Now, it didn't seem like he could see them, but they said his expression was, uh, seemed to be looking like kind of right through or past them, but it was full of hate and malice. Yikes. Then a, uh, another man showed them finally to the uh, Petit Trianon. Now, this man was tall, they said, with large dark eyes and uh, crisp curling black hair uh, under a large sombrero hat. Uh, what? He's wearing a sombrero. Like a La Cucaracha. Like a, some, like a Mexican sombrero. Well, a Spanish sombrero, certainly. Okay. He wasn't wearing like a whole mariachi outfit. I don't. They didn't say he he might have been. Well, I feel like that's something you'd notice. Moberly said uh, after they crossed the bridge to get to the gardens in front of the palace, right? They finally reached their destination. Uh, she said she saw a woman laying on the grass and sketching. And that woman uh, looked at them for, for a little while uh, and then looked away. She said she was wearing a light summer dress with kind of a green bodice and a yellow skirt. Uh, she had a big shady white hat uh, under which was tons of fair hair just piled up. Um, and she thought at first that must be a tourist, uh, you know, like her. Um, but the dress was very old fashioned and um, that was weird. Mm-hmm. And then they went into the palace and there were a bunch of other uh, tourists there, other visitors to the park. They uh, did their tour and they had tea at the um, Hotel de Reservoir. Hotel of the Reservoir. Yes. And then they left. Okay, so uh, what's so exciting? Why did they think they had a time slip? Well, neither one of these women mentioned it to the other for a week. They okay. didn't talk about it at all. Uh, Moberly first mentioned it, as best we can tell, in a letter to her sister. 
And then at some point after thinking about it, she asked uh, Jordan if she thought the Petit Trianon was um, haunted. Mm-hmm. And without question, without hesitation, Jordan went, yes. <laughs> Instantly. And then they started to compare notes about what they had noticed that day. Now, at this time, I mean, you know, there's like a, a costume showcase for everything now. Every museum or whatever preserved house has people in costume telling you about the people that used to live there, right? Was there anything like that in 1901 at Versailles? Um, no official, no, no, they weren't doing like tours in fancy dress or anything like that. No. And there wasn't anyone just there in fancy dress, just living like Sturbridge village or whatever. People just kind of hang out, populate the scene, make it look authentic. No. And in fact, the guards, uh, wouldn't have had uniforms like the ones those, those guys had actually. Um, well, I'll get back to those uniforms in a moment. Mm -hmm. But as they started comparing notes and doing research, they realized, uh, by the way, it had been August 10th, uh, 1901 when they were there. They realized August 10th in 1792 was the day that the Tuileries Palace in Paris was occupied by revolutionaries and the king's uh, Swiss guard was killed. After that point, the king and his family were put under uh, guard and about six months later, the monarchy was over. And shortly after that, King Louis and Marie Antoinette were both executed. But nothing happened at Versailles that day. Nope. Okay. Just something they thought just, was interesting. interesting. <laughs> um, they made several trips back to the Trianon Gardens, um, but they were never able to find that path again. The one they had taken to get there. The other LA. Yeah, that little kiosk was missing by the by the um, church. That's probably for the best. He didn't seem like a very pleasant man. The bridge was missing. Couldn't find that bridge ever again. And, and they said the, cr the grounds were always crowded with people. It was never kind of empty and forlorn like it had been that day. Mm-hmm. Now, in 1902, uh, on a trip there, Moberly got lost in the woods again, and she said she could hear faint music uh, coming from over in the direction of what she thought, I guess, was the Petit Trianon, she was lost. <laughs> okay. And um, she later wrote down from memory 12 measures of music. All right. Overachiever. That she showed to a music expert, she said. And the music expert had that, uh, said th that a melody like that would date to about 1780. Okay, so she said that this guy said that. She also said that a lot of people on the staff at Versailles told her that bands aren't allowed to play except in the winter there. Sorry, that no bands are allowed to play in the winter there, which is when she was there. Okay, so she this is all coming from her, though. There's no, like independent music expert saying no this. this was all in um their book which i'll which i'll get to oh. now in 1903 the ladies they, they keep doing research remember they're you know they both sort of no they do work at oxford so sure um they've got access to some uh, resources for this at least books anyway <laughs> So in 1903, they find a, a map from the year 1783, a pre-revolutionary map that shows uh, a bridge and uh, a pavilion and garden, just like they described over at the Petit Trianon. The ladies insist in this book that they are, because I'll just spill the beans now. They wrote a book about this uh, after they'd compared all their notes. Uh, it was published in 1911, mm -hmm. uh, and it was called The Adventure. Cute. Yeah, it was published under two pen names, Elizabeth Morrison and Frances Lamont. 
Mm-hmm. These are pretty extraordinary claims these ladies are making. They work in academia. Um, they come from pretty respected families. Probably not good to <laughs> just be running around with your weird time travel claims sure. all willy-nilly out in the open. But hey, that doesn't mean you can't make a buck off it. Yeah, definitely. And so in this book, they uh, make sure to say they went through this research with the intention of proving that it didn't happen, right? That this wasn't finding a rational explanation. And so they looked to see if there had been any costume parties or anything booked for the grounds. They couldn't find anything. They poured over portraits of people who might have um, been at Versailles at around that time to try to identify the people they had seen. And they identified that weird hideous looking man at the kiosk as the Comte de Vaudreuil. The Comte, the Comte de Vaudreuil. Was the painting of him with or without the smallpox? I, I can't find a picture of this guy with smallpox sores on his face. Ugh. The Comte de Vaudreuil. Vaud- it's C-O-M-T-E-D-E-V-A-U-D-R-E-U-I-L. Comte de Vaudreuil. Vaud- Vaudreuil. Comte de Vaudreuil. Okay. <laughs> Anne Moberly said that the uh, she finally saw a picture of Marie Antoinette that convinced her that that woman who had been sketching was Marie Antoinette. Of course she had seen pictures of Marie Antoinette. They were at Versailles. Like, what do you mean she finally saw a picture of well, she, her? She finally saw a picture that convinced her because for a long time her friends were saying, oh, that must have been Marie Antoinette that you saw, right? It's been her <laughs> ghost. And she said, no, it doesn't quite look right. It doesn't quite look right, does it? And then she saw one, I guess, pretty famous picture. I'm sorry, I didn't write the artist's name down. But there's uh, one picture in particular of Marie Antoinette um, where the nose is a little bit squished and the uh, uh, chin is a little bit squished. And she said, oh, this one looks like her. (laughs) And uh, then she claims she confirmed through further research that Marie Antoinette's friends said that was the uh, best picture of her ever done. (laughs) The squished face pug picture. Yeah. Wow, nice friends you got there. I think a lot of uh, royal portraiters probably flattered. (laughs) Oh, they definitely did. For fear of probably execution or whatever. Oh, yeah. Um, But she also found the diary of Marie Antoinette's dressmaker. In the year 1789, summer, she made Marie Antoinette a dress with a green silk bodice, white ficus, which is like, I guess, a bunch of lacy stuff over the top, and a yellow skirt. Hmm. Now, based on all this evidence, uh, and as they lay out in the book, Moberly uh, thought that it was a time slip that they had stepped um, back into, she thought maybe the year 1789, a few years before the um, fall of the monarchy. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, Jordan disagreed. She thought that they had slipped uh, directly into Marie Antoinette's living memory, kind of hanging around the place like a ghostly... Yeah, like a ghostly memory, I guess. Ah, that's trippy. So, aside from hearing that music while she was lost in the woods, did either of these two ever experience anything like that again? (laughs) It's funny that you ask. In 1914, so obviously sometime later, um, Moberly claimed that she had seen the Emperor Constantine, the Roman Emperor Constantine, uh, while she was in the Louvre. Just hanging out? Yeah, she just she saw an unusually tall man with a gold crown and a toga. <laughs> and she was like, look over there, that's the Emperor Constantine. And no one else could see him. 
Uh, why why at the Louvre? Why would he be there? I don't know, but sometime shortly after that, Jordan became the principal of the college. Mm. Um, but then Jordan became convinced during World War One that there was a German spy hiding within the college. Oh, boy. And she whipped up such a um, kind of frenzy among the faculty that after a series of um, resignations and questions about her leadership, um, there was a whole kind of um, investigation and possible firing underway when she died suddenly in 1923. Oh. Moberly, uh, for her part, died in 1937. So has anyone else seen anything weird at Versailles specifically? Kind of like this. Um, I couldn't find any uh, references, but I do have some folks who offered possible explanations for this, besides just these ladies are lying. Sure. Well, first things first, Robert de Montesquieu was a, an aristocratic, decadent poet who lived in France from 1855 to 1921. And according to his biographer, Philippe Julien, and Julien published his book in 1965 on Montesquieu, in which he said that Montesquieu lived near Versailles in 1901 and was known to give parties on the grounds of the palace. Mm-hmm. And at these parties, friends would often, like almost every time, it was like their favorite thing at these parties, uh, dress for the period and perform tableau vivant. Interesting. It, I mean, listen, I don't find tableau vivant like a, a especially interesting party activity, um, but it also seems really weird to like, okay, we're going to the party. I'm going to have a jug. You're going to have smallpox. You, you're going to be sketching in the grass and let's just freeze and not hang out with each other. Yep, They said it was uh, likely the smallpox faced man may have been Montesquieu himself. With like makeup on or. Um, yeah. And, and just for the, for the record, they threw in that, um. If there was a woman sketching on the grass dressed like Marie Antoinette, it might have been at a Montesquieu party, a man or a woman. Who knows? Love that. That's a party. And so the question is, are uh, Moberly and Jordan just accidental uh, wedding crashers, party crashers? <laughs> well, I think if it were me, I would be in the same position where I also wouldn't know it was a party. Uh, yeah, again, it's not, it's not banging. <laughs> well, it's not even that. It's like. Who goes to a party and then just pretends to pour a jug for like a while? That's a weird thing to do. This party was so lame that they said the wind stopped moving the trees. Yeah, even that's the wind was, was born. <laughs> uh, okay. So uh, that's one That's one option. Yep. Uh, now, I will say that the Dame Joan Evans is the woman who owned the copyright to An Adventure mm -hmm. uh, after these women's deaths. Um, and after Julianne's book, the Montesquieu biography came out, she was so convinced by that explanation that she uh, forbade any further editions of the book from being published. Wow. She said, well, obviously this is what this was. And uh, I don't want that. I don't want anybody else believing this. So, so don't don't put it out anymore. And has it ever been published again? Well, it passed out of copyright in 1988 yeah. and was immediately republished as The Ghosts of Trianon, a, The Complete and Adventure, crediting the uh, real authors by their real names. Hmm. Okay. So, costume party. That's an idea. Mm -hmm. What are the other theories here? Well, the only other real explanation that people throw out is that it's just kind of a shared delusion. And that... A foliado. 
Yeah, that gets that phrase gets thrown around a lot in the story. Yes, I love the the concept of that. Um, for our listeners, that means a madness of two. Um, you might recognize it if you had an emo period as a Fallout Boy album name. <laughs> um, but it's basically it basically means that people can work each other up so much that they kind of share a an insanity and a, a delusion that they both feed into um, to the point where they literally lose their minds, but in the same way together. Yeah, and, and it can happen. The effect can even be even more pronounced with a little bit of time removal. Um, Michael Coleman is a guy, another guy who's looked into this. He wrote a book called Ghosts of the Trional, and um, he read multiple versions of the account of the uh, time slip. Mm -hmm. And he noticed that the uh, later published versions from 1911 and after um, have a lot more detail, a lot more events. Oh, of course. They're much more blown up. Whereas the earlier accounts, like the one uh, Moberly had just written to her sister in a letter, um, didn't really seem to even be driving at the supernatural. Right. Like, well, there was a lady in the grass anyway. How's the weather? You know, right. He also in the book gets very shady, uh, questioning the ladies, uh, research, uh, pointing out mm. they pretty much never name sources. Yeah. And, um, he actually, uh, questions even some of the facts that they, that they, uh, well then does he, does he think it's something like a foliado or is it like they're both lying? No, he thinks like, do, it, do no, you he, think that he thinks they believe whatever they're saying. He thinks in the days since that fairly normal afternoon, mm -hmm. he doesn't think there needs to even have been the fancy dress stuff going on there in real life. Mm -hmm. He thinks they could easily have talked themselves up to this point um, in the you know months and then years. The, the book came out in 1911. So in the months and years afterwards, they just uh, uh, continually gas each other up till it's this wild fairy tale. Yeah, I mean, that seems really possible in this case. And I was thinking that kind of the whole time, especially when you said that, which one, Julianne or whatever, um, had that paranoia that there was a spy and she like riled everyone else. Jordan, yeah. At, yeah Jordan. Um, she riled everyone else up to like a frenzy. I mean, that's classic. And I'm going to be going into the soon actually on the show, but that's a classic hysteria of like just starting with one person and then it spreads. It's like a disease. Honestly, if she's that good at like riling up a bunch of people, imagine just being one-on-one -on -one with someone else. And obviously what's the other girl's name? Moberly. Obviously, Moberly, um, I don't, I mean, seeing Constantine in the Louvre, like, she's she's open to new experiences, that's for sure. Yeah, what if he was there, Caroline? You doubt that Constantine was there? I doubt it a little less if it wasn't the Louvre. Like, does he have anything to do with the Louvre? Was she confused? Did she mean John Constantine? Maybe she just saw <laughs> Keanu Reeves <laughs> He is. the Louvre. He is immortal, so I would believe it. Huh. Okay wild so that's um as it's variously called the uh versailles time slip the moberly jordan incident mm -hmm. um yeah what, what do you think did those ladies step through a portal in time i would be more prone to believe that if that other stuff hadn't happened after mm. where one of them 
convinces a whole bunch of people that there's a spy when there wasn't, and one of them sees Constantine at the Louvre. They seem to not have a super strong grasp on reality, at least after that viewing. And maybe these two women just had an effect on each other where they, they like you said, they gassed each other up. They're same sort of like their hysteria just worked on the same level um they were meant for each other yeah if you know that means that you found your partner in insanity there have been people who are writing about them over the years who have um like injected some uh lesbian passion into the uh, mix but i I think that's just for the um but that's a great indie film two ladies too strict scholarly ladies going for you know a summer in Paris together gay Paris and they they go back in time and they're like lovers absolutely that's that's a movie right there in the like decadent French royal court yes oh my god Marie Antoinette's probably a lesbian in this movie like I might write it to be honest I might write this movie all right, you heard it here first. <laughs> don't don't steal my idea, everyone. Um, so that is actually the best known and most widespread and uh, most often cited case of a time slip. Yeah, I've heard of this one before. I mean, not all the details, certainly not the postscript. Mm-hmm. Um, what other cases have there been? Well, we're going to get into several cases. How about cases from this past century, uh, which <laughs> which is nice. But first, all I'm going to ask our listeners to do is not time travel um, <laughs> a minute or two in the future. And Sean, sk- they may not be able to control it. But but I don't want them to skip the um, the the ad because it pays the bills. Oh yes, don't skip the ad. Don't time slip. You guys, I love you guys. You can do what you want. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Lots of things are a struggle right now. School, work, even something as simple as going to the grocery store, it could feel overwhelming. But one thing that shouldn't be overwhelming is accessing mental and emotional care. That's where BetterHelp comes in. BetterHelp is the leader in online counseling with over 4,000 licensed counselors on the site and over 500,000 people who have gotten counseling to date. The mission of BetterHelp is to make professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. So anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere. I've been using BetterHelp for the better part of this year, and honestly, I don't know how I would have gotten through 2020 without it. And, of course, Sean and Poe. When I need to talk to my counselor, I can just text her and I can schedule chats, phone calls, or video calls for longer sessions. 
This means I have flexibility to set a session during the week, or during busy weeks, I can just shoot her a message here and there when I have time. Take control of your mental and emotional well-being. BetterHelp is a great place to start. For 10% off your first month subscription of BetterHelp, go to our podcast link at www.betterhelp.com slash scary and see how good it can feel to push past the struggle and find hope in a new day. That's www.betterhelp.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y for 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. Get professional counseling anytime, anywhere, because you deserve to be happy. Welcome back. Caroline, welcome back. Welcome back. Okay. <laughs> Just wanted to tell you. <laughs> All right. The next story I want to tell you, Carrie, is about the Kersey time slip. Ooh, okay. This uh, took place in 1957, if uh, events are to be believed, as they're presented in Andrew McKenzie's book. Mm-hmm. Andrew McKenzie is... Um, Andrew McKenzie is a leading member of the Society for Psychical Research. You've heard of that, right? I think I have, yeah. It's one of the biggest, like, we're into weird shit <laughs> groups <laughs> um, in the world. And they love aliens and they love ghosts. Um, by the way, if you want to know how serious, how seriously the adventure uh, was taken, even at the time, to get back to the, the Versailles ladies. Mm-hmm. Um, even then, the Society for Psychical Research Review um, said these seem like normal events being misinterpreted. Oh, okay. Anyhow, this writer for the Society for Psych- Psychical Research found something to take seriously. In 1957, three 15-year-old Royal Navy cadets were on a map reading trek. It was like a test. Mm-hmm. Go out, you, you they had to go like four or five miles kind of navigating with just a map and a compass. 15? Yeah. That's young for the Navy. Uh, well, they were cadets, so I think it was like school, and then you get to oh. be a real Navy in, mm-hmm. in uh, <laughs> at 16, maybe? <laughs> uh-huh. But it was 1957, too. Who knows? Um, so they were supposed to come back and report kind of everything they could uh, take in, you know, see. And they found out later that their supposed destination was the village of Kersey. When they got to um, this spot on the map. Now, where is Kersey? It's in Suffolk County, England. Uh-huh. Not uh, Long Island. Uh, no. <laughs> no. 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 Uh, the Royal Navy cadets were not trekking through uh, Long Island. Um, now, when the boys got to their destination, they did find a village, but they thought it was a very strange village. The streets were deserted. Um, they saw no cars at all. Um, there were no aerials or antennas on the roofs for television mm-hmm. um and there were no phone wires anywhere time to leave boys <laughs> as they walked down the main street they said the houses looked uh, ragged they were framed with giant ancient looking timbers and uh, looked really hand built mm-hmm. you know with with giant peg peg nails and, and, and that kind of thing almost they said quote medieval in appearance mm-hmm now, the boys ran over and pressed their faces against the window of the first building they saw. Sure, because they're still kids. And inside, they saw um, what they decided was a butcher shop. Because there was meat and blood everywhere. Well, there were no tables or chairs. Uh, there were just three whole oxen inside. 
uh, and they were skinned and uh, green with age in some places. Yikes. Just a bunch of green meat. They said the door of this building was painted green um, and the windows had small glass panes that were also a little bit green. This seems like a place that you should not spend a lot of time. No. One of the boys remarked, uh, said later that he remarked to the others, who would believe in 1957 that the health authorities would allow such conditions? Wow, that was that was some accent work there, Sean. The boys looked into another window and uh, saw, once again, greenish, smeary windows. Uh, crudely whitewashed walls, but the rooms were empty. There was no furniture. Mm-hmm. At this point, the kids got the fuck out of there. Yeah, all you see is just a bunch of green meat. Bye. Uh, and they didn't turn back until they reached the top of the hill. Mm-hmm. But at that point, they heard bells chiming off in the distance. Like, like church, church bells? bells? Yeah. They turned and saw smoke rising from the chimneys. Was the it town. green? No. Okay. Just smoke. But they realized at that moment that they hadn't heard the bells and they hadn't seen smoke coming from any of the chimneys until this moment. Was that the only thing that was unusual? Did they notice any other differences in the town? That was just about it. And for the most part, the boys didn't think about it at all until uh, like 30 years later. Oh, okay. And in the 80s, um, two of these boys, um, the boys' names, by the way, were uh, William Lang, Michael Crowley, and Ray Baker. And in the 80s, Lang and Crowley were both living in Australia, and they kind of hooked back up. They, you know, uh, reconnected, and they started talking about this. <laughs> Remember that weird meat town? Well, well, Lang thought had been, like, basically never stopped thinking about it. And Crowley said... Yeah. Crowley said he hadn't really dwelled on it at all, but said, yeah, I guess I do remember something weird happening. Uh, and then they contacted this guy, Andrew McKenzie, with the uh, Psychical Research Association. Now, McKenzie, this is where the story gets, you know, fun paranormal detective stuff. He uh, spends two years corresponding with Lang and Crowley. Uh, then he travels to Kersey and does research with a local historian. Mm-hmm. Uh, about the about the history of the area. This could be a great ghost adventures episode. Oh, totally. Then he calls. Here's the here's. <laughs> Where's your meat? Yeah. Show us your meat. E- even better ghost adventures. He then calls Lang and Crowley to come with him to walk around the town. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Aaron's freaking out. <laughs> we shouldn't be here, man. <laughs> Do you smell meat? I smell meat. So as they're walking around, Lang points out the butcher shop. He goes, "That was where we saw the butcher shop." Mm-hmm. And this building was a residential home in 1957, but Mackenzie now knew from his research that it had been a butcher shop. Hmm. At least as early as 1790, the building was built in like the 1300s. Okay, interesting. And um, the other weird thing was he kept asking the boy, the not boys, men now, but Mackenzie kept asking them, "Now you're sure you didn't see a church at all?" And they were like, "No, we would have remembered." But uh, they heard the church at the end. At the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, and, and then they, I believe they saw it, too, because this church oh, they is like did a see super it. recognizable town-dominating landmark. Mm-hmm. But only when they were at the top of the hill and they turned back. They did not see it when they were in the town. Okay. Mackenzie thought that was really weird because, again, this is a, a, a landmark that dominates the entire skyline of the town. Now, that church wasn't finished until after the Black Death of 1348. Mm-hmm. It was being built when the plague struck. The plague pushed its construction off until like after 1360. 
I'm sorry, uh, even later than that. Uh, The Black Death really interrupted that production. (laughs) We know how that is. Right. And so what Mackenzie landed on was he thought the boys had traveled back in time to around the year 1420. Um, And where he got that was the church still wouldn't have been finished. Mm-hmm. And the half of it that would have been built uh, wouldn't have been high enough yet to be like this, this you know, massive landmark. The trees could have blocked it out. Uh, meanwhile, there were glass windows in the town. That's super rare in the 1400s. But at this time, the town was um, getting rich from the wool trade, according to our local historian friend whose name we never learned. I mean... So 1420, the church isn't built yet, but you've got enough money for glass That's pretty impressive because, I mean, we've been to places where it's like, oh, and they had glass in their windows and that's fancy. And it was like the 1700s. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Now, um, I read a great article about this event on um, the Smithsonian's website. Maybe we can link off to it on our website Mm -hmm. um, because they did the hard work here. (laughs) Um, But let me adjust my glasses here. and tell you that first of all our first historical mention of the village of kersey's from an anglo-saxon will from the year 900 a.d wow so it's very old and it still has a lot of structures from medieval times it looks pretty medieval Mm -hmm. Um, and it wasn't even hooked up for electricity until the early 50s now our story is from 57 but it was controversial when the electricity and the phone lines went in, and the Suffolk Preservation Society uh, put up a holy stink of a fight. You know how town council meetings get when old people come and like, oh, you can't build that McDonald's. Mm-hmm. It was that, except you can't put those phone lines in here. And period writings said the following. Uh, negotiations have resulted in the overhead line being carried behind the houses on either side of the street and a cable being laid underground at the only spot where the street has to be crossed. Interesting. Very interesting. And so all of the power lines that were put in in the early 50s were invisible from the street Mm -hmm. by design. Were the houses that existed or structures that existed, did they still have like big timbers with giant pegs? Um, yeah, it, well, there there are buildings, that, small buildings there, uh, thatched huts and things that have been there literally since like the 1300s. Mm-hmm. Okay. And here's the last point that um, the Smithsonian makes. And I, I did like this, a little snarky. Um, they said, first of all, if they're rich enough to have glass windows, why would there be no furniture in the houses? Which, sure. Mm-hmm. But if, like, if it's like the sense of this ghost town, I don't know, maybe the people and all the furniture disappeared. I I don't know. Did they, well, did they look in more than one house? No. Yeah. I mean, maybe someone was just selling their house. Yeah, that's true. And here's the second thing. Um, the Smithsonian kind of said a butcher shop in um, a nearby village, Sedgeford, mm-hmm. around this time, because we have records from around this, around 1420 in Sedgeford. Mm-hmm. Um, they were slaughtering three cattle a year. Yes. Yeah, I, I was thinking three oxen's like a biggie. Yeah. Uh, And now this... I mean, I know that from my extensive experience with the Oregon Trail game. Of course. Of course. (laughs) You don't want to hunt for for more after that because you can't carry it back to the wagon and someone's going to get shot. Obviously. Now, Sedgeford is half the size of um, Kersey. Mm -hmm. But still, three oxen all killed at once is, is crazy. Yeah. I mean, unless they were sick 
Maybe that's the green on their meat. Yeah, could be. And they didn't want to waste it, so they're just going to cut around it. Like when you find a little mold spot on a piece of bread and you're like, but I really want to stand with it. <laughs> um, but so while the uh, Society for Psychical Research uh, found this to be a pretty compelling case, the Smithsonian Institute did not. Hmm. Now what happened after this? Did the guys have anything else to say? Did they ever link back up with that third guy? Uh, no, I don't think he was actually that interested in <laughs> rehashing it. I don't know. It was weird. Bye. Yeah. He's like, guys, it wasn't that weird. <laughs> Some green meat. <laughs> I've had worse dinners. <laughs> huh. Well, what do you think, Sean? I I think they probably just saw some rotten meat. I think it's <laughs> a quiet day in the town. I mean... It reminds me, there is one time, there's one time I went to a, uh, stay in a tiny village in Ireland with my family. And as we hit the village, we went and checked in on our, um, little bed and breakfast that we were staying in. And then we walked out into the village and there was, it was about eight o'clock at night and we figured there's gotta be a pub or something. And, mm -hmm. and the whole place was deserted. All the lights were off. It was Were totally they all dark. at the pub? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. We finally found the pub and the entire town was there. Well, I don't know if they'd be there in the middle of the day when these guys were doing their thing. Well, that's true. But I mean, maybe there's some kind of a weird local holiday they don't know about. Maybe people are just at work. <laughs> maybe it's like a wicker man thing and they were making a wicker man. Total wicker man thing. <laughs> these kids are lucky they didn't get sacrificed. Maybe that's where their third friend is. Mm, a wicker man. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know if we can really... Um, understand it in america growing up in america but there are places across the sea in europe and, and so on that are just truly ancient um you know i my mom was born in portugal and we still have family there and we visit all the time and well, all the time as much as we can um and there are places where it's like there's an h&m on one side of the street and a 1200s era church on the other and it's bizarre but it's you know we can't we don't have any concept of things that old in america things kind of start in the 1600s for us maybe the 1500s with like certain spanish settlements but as we talked about in roanoke there's not a lot of places like that left um so the concept of coming across that, and if you're, a, you know, in the Royal Navy or whatever, you might not have ever encountered anything that old, you know? Mm -hmm. So maybe it, maybe it is a case where people just live in these same buildings and to someone coming across it, you know, in quote unquote modern day, um, it seems like so ancient you can't even believe it. Well, that's what I love about the idea of like a European road trip. You know what I mean? Like just hopping in a car and driving down tiny roads and staying at tiny weird little hotels that are God knows how old. Mm -hmm. um, and that is exactly what two couples decided to do in 1979. Jeff and Pauline Simpson and Len and Cynthia Gisby. Mm -hmm. Now they were uh, all British and they were going to take a holiday in Spain, but they were going to take a detour through France. So they took a trip across the channel with their car and uh, started driving through France, just staying wherever they found along the way. Sean, I'm not sure if you've considered this, but maybe all British people are psychic. That's 
Oh, boy, that's very interesting. Because <laughs> you've only talked about British people so far. I know, and I have one more uh, topic to cover here, and it's also, I don't want to spoil it, but it might be British. Maybe I should ask my Uncle David if he's ever, like, went back in time. Yeah, that's amazing. I didn't make that connection. These are all English stories. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was thinking, oh, I wonder if any of these are going to be in America because of what we were talking about, how there's not really that sense of ancient age here. Yeah. So it's very interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Anyhow, luckily for us, and there's nothing that says like ancient gravitas more than this. Um, the Gisbys did a uh, strange but true episode uh, <laughs> uh, in 1995. Now, ah, this is a yes. series. Have you ever seen Strange But True? I've heard of it. I mean, there was a lot of these kinds of shows um, beyond belief, fact or fiction, that sort of thing. It all stemmed from the popularity of the X-Files. Of course. Uh, now, this is one that was high camp uh, recreations. Oof, love it. I yeah. love that shit. Oh, they're acting. It's the, it's the whole thing. Um, so it's really good. So we have them to kind of guide us along here. Thank God. But so on October 3rd, the two couples were tired near um, Montélimar, France. Sorry? Montélimar, France. Mon Montelimar. Near Montelimar. <laughs> Near Montelimar. Oh, Montelimar. <laughs> oh, it's good old Montelimar, France. Uh, and they stopped in at an Ibis, which I gathered is a um, roadside motel chain, kind of like a Holiday Inn. Okay. Um, and there were no rooms at the inn, unfortunately. A man in, they said, a weird plum uniform, kind of an old-fashioned plum suit. Willy Wonka? Yeah, told them that there was no vacancy, but if they took a certain road off the freeway, they would find a hotel he was sure would have rooms. <laughs> Yuck, never follow a man with a plum suit. Yeah, that's, well, RuPaul wears a plum suit. RuPaul transcends gender, but true. So they head down this road, which I can only, in my notes here, I have it described as a ghost road. <laughs> Nice, Sean. <laughs> uh, because they said it was lined with old buildings and plastered with old-timey circus posters, plastered over with posters for a vintage circus, you know, coming soon. Um, and the road was cobbled and narrow, certainly not built for cars. Yeah, but there is a lot of roads like that in Europe. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Still, I mean... I've twisted many an ankle in Lisbon by itself, just all the cobblestones and everything. These places weren't built for cars because no one knew what they were. Well, the whole road was dark except one building at the end finally was brightly lit. It was a very old-fashioned hotel. It was just a two-story building. Now, the people inside spoke no English, but our traveling and our traveling friends spoke no French, but they did manage to get themselves shown to a room. <laughs> Um, now, inside, they found it to be even more old-timey. They said all the furniture was very heavy, dark wood. Um, there were no tablecloths on the tables. You gotta pay extra for that nowadays. Yeah, really. It's like how <laughs> when we were planning a wedding, you have to pay so much more to get married in a barn. <laughs> so much more not to have a chandelier. I want it rustic. Great. Extra thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, they found a huge old-fashioned bed with... Um, bolsters instead of pillows those are just circular pillows i guess from what i can gather <laughs> filled with straw um oh and the it was a feather mattress so there's one bed for all four of them uh, no each, each couple got a room but feather mattresses mm -hmm. and they i was gonna say this is the 70s anything goes baby it's long beautiful hey ah <laughs> they found there was no glass in the windows 
pipes. Now there's no glass. So this medieval village has got it in 1420. So there's just big gaps in the house? Uh, wooden shutters. Okay. And they said the plumbing was, quote, vintage in the bathroom, <laughs> but they found it charming. The original hipsters. Uh-huh. And uh, then the two couples rejoined each other in the dining room where they had a uh, hearty, but a simple but hearty meal, you could say, of uh, steak, eggs, potatoes, and they washed it down with some lager. It was... Um, in the morning? Uh, no. Th- oh, this was dinner. This is dinner. <laughs> well, I didn't know steak and eggs, I mean. Yeah, I know. It does sound like breakfast food, doesn't it? And they said they really enjoyed the kind of uh, simple pleasures of it, but they found it all a little strange. Food like that on a motorway service oh, station. Yeah. Oh, cutlery like this. Yeah. Maybe it was made locally. And the beer? I've never tasted anything like it before. Still, I couldn't let it go to waste, now could I? <laughs> <laughs> There's your reenactors for you. I think that lady's sexually attracted to cutlery. I've never seen anything quite like the it. cutlery! God, maybe it's made locally. <laughs> And you didn't see the video. She's like fingering it as she says Ew. that. That's a, that's not gross. <laughs> okay. They said they got a great night's sleep. The feather comforter was exceptionally comfortable, although a little pokey. And uh, they came down the next day for a breakfast of bread and jam and thick black coffee that was too strong for them even to drink. Yeah. Yeah. Thick coffee. Yeah. Then uh, it was around this time that two gendarmes came in. Uh, that's the French word for cops. <laughs> okay. But it's fun to say, right? Gendarme. Mm-hmm. So two gendarmes came in in um, uniforms that they'd never seen before. But you don't know what your local... Yeah, presumably they've never been to this town. <laughs> right. So they, they said very strange uniforms. Uh, and there was also um, another strange uh, strange woman who was dressed a, a, a little, well... I guess old-fashioned. came in with a mauve dress on. She looked as though she'd been to a dance. Very old-fashioned type. They just said they'd been to an all-night party. She looked very... very old-fashioned. We get it. She's (laughs) old-fashioned. Love British people. I love it. She looked... oh, oh, (laughs) old-fashioned. Yeah, okay. Um, and the, the two couples went outside. This is a memorable spot, so they wanted to remember it. Jeff took p- a picture of Pauline by the windows, and Len took a picture of Cynthia by the hotel, and he also took one of the hotel by itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Len started to ask the cop for uh, one of the gendarmes for directions. And, uh, of course, there's a language barrier issue, but um, he didn't think that that was the only problem they were having with communication. He had no idea what an autoroute was, for my opinion, anyway. That's the most British man that has ever existed. He didn't know what it was. I didn't know what... I like how, like, it definitely didn't occur to him that he might not know the French word for autoroute, which I assume is autoroute, actually. It probably sounds right. Maybe his accent wasn't perfect and the guy was just being a I don't think this guy had much of an accent. He sounds so cockney. (laughs) (laughs) Could you show us to the auto Uh, route? Auto route? Auto route? Qu'est-ce que c'est? Auto route? Qu'est-ce que c'est? Auto route? Qu'est-ce que c'est? No. Um, So yeah, he said uh, the man was 
baffled when he was trying to ask where the auto route was or the freeway. Um, but once he figured out that they were going to Spain, he directed them back to the old Avignon road. Um, for the record, the two men, uh, typical men on a road trip said, well, that's uh, that seems needlessly roundabout. We're not doing that. We'll just retrace our steps. So then they went and got the bill, which was only 19 franc, which at the time was about $3. Okay. And Len said, he even said to the clerk, like, no, you don't understand. This is for all of us. <laughs> this is, I'm paying for four of us here and, and breakfast and dinner. And I was like, oui, 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 franc. Merci, merci. Merci, oui, oui, And they said, well... They figure you can't beat the prices. So on their way back, after their holiday, two weeks later, they find the turnoff, they find the cobbled street, they even find the circus posters, but no hotel. Building's not there. They go and they find the Ibis that mm -hmm. they had asked about. Um, and at the Ibis, they say they've never heard of this place, and also they've never had a weird guy working there in a purple suit. Hey, where's the purple guy? Where's your purple friend? Show me your oh, purple man. I'd like to man. speak to the purple gentleman. <laughs> How crazy must they have sounded? Uh, one of the wives suggested maybe it had been um, demolished, but only two weeks later? Also, you would probably, if you thought you were in the right spot, you would probably notice where there was like a big empty lot that had just been demolished. You would think so. Were they sure they were in the right place? We gave up after about four maneuvers up and down the road. The next one cost us 247 francs for just a sandwich and a night. <laughs> Classic old man being bitter. Just a sandwich and a night. <laughs> um, yeah, and wouldn't you know it, Caroline, what would you guess happened when they got those photographs de developed? Uh, there's no background? Um, there's no photos at all. The correct number of photos came out of each roll, but with a few duplicates in place of the pictures that included the hotel. Like exact duplicates, or he took the same picture twice? No, like, you know, how you get a duplicates in a, a roll of photos? Mm-hmm. Huh. So the right number of photos were there, but it was missing the pictures that had been taken of the hotel. And he called Here. Len... Um, you know, this happened to, to Jeff first. He called Len. Same thing. It was as though we hadn't taken them at all. Just weren't there. And there was no signs of them having been there. That's bizarre. It is. And they, did they corroborate, like, all of the different points of this story? Like, yep, there was a purple guy. Yep, this is what the hotel looked like. This is what we had for, you know, to eat. Yeah, both couples definitely agree. Now, they went and talked to some friends who you know, knew about French fashion history, I, I guess. It said they had a friend who's a fashion historian. Sure, like my French Revolution historian friend. Of course. And uh, so they mentioned the uniforms to this friend, and, and the friend said that looked like what, um, you know, French gendarmes would have been uh, wearing around, you know, the turn of the century, 1901. Such a specific thing to know about. It is. <laughs> and furthermore, once that friend said that, they went and looked, maybe it was 1904, they, it was the turn of the century. And 
They then went and looked at a price comparison chart and found that the three franc rate for the room and the meals and everything would have kind of made sense in uh, the turn of the century. Do you know how much it would have been? In modern money? Well, modern to the 70s. Like, what what made them go, yeah, that sounds right. Based on the exchange, the historical, uh, you know, exchange rate and inflation and everything, they figured um, that sounded about right. And that was a pretty eerie coincidence for old Len. The only thing I could think of with um, all the dates corresponding is that we went into a time lapse. We went back in time. That's it. It's the only way. So because of the picture thing, they figured they went back in time. Yeah. Hmm. So are there any theories about this one specifically? Uh, No, I don't think people have taken too many pains to disprove this one because, you know, outside of this one episode of Strange But True and people just repeating it in blogs on the internet, (laughs) it's hard to, to really find any more. You know, it's not like it's not like the Versailles incident where there's many books arguing back and forth (laughs) over whether it's real. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is just something that these people claimed happened. Uh, A TV show made an episode about it at one point. Um, And it's kind of their weird claim against the world. Right. But I I could see it being a similar thing. I mean, they these guys had had a couple weeks to gas themselves up about the hotel they couldn't find again before they got the photos back and went, I'm sure we took a picture of that hotel. Mm-hmm. And the coffee was weird. And the purple guy. Weird. You know, I did find that guy's suit weird. <laughs> well, it's just a weird thing to be wearing a purple suit and loiter outside of what's basically a red roof inn and not be part of the inn. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I could see that kind of adding into it. Just be like, hey, what about that guy? You can't explain that. Um, oh, boy. I had more fun with all of these stories than I thought I would. So I'm going to nail down this last thing very quickly. Could the purple guy oh, have been part of the circus? Okay. I hear what you're saying now. You know what's interesting is that the circus posters didn't vanish. They found... Well, the- that's what I was saying. They're still there. Maybe that's just what it, it was a circus, but it had a vintage looking poster. Oh, yeah. Oh, so he was just there because of the circus and he was just being helpful? <laughs> yeah. He's like, I think I saw a place down the road. Yeah, you know circus folk. They're very helpful. French circus folk. Nobody better. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> <laughs> There's an involuntary noise you made. <laughs> Sorry. It just sounds like a lot. The last thing I have to tell you about uh, are the Bold Street time slips. In Liverpool. And I'm going to cover them very quickly because we've had a lot of fun with our other topics. We've gone longer than I thought. And this one is (laughs) most probably bullshit of all of these. Liverpool. Yeah. Um, And the reason I say that is because all of these reports come from a Tom Sleeman. Sorry? Tom Sleeman. Okay. He writes for the Liverpool Echo. It's a local paper there. Uh, The paper describes Tom as their master of the macabre. Good old Sleeman. Yep. And he writes a column called Tales from Liverpool, uh, as well as a series of books called uh, Haunted Liverpool. Nice. So he's kind of a cool, you know, um, paranormal uh, guy. Liverpoolian. It's what he's into. If you're into, if you're looking for a ghost in Liverpool, you, you want to go find Tom Sleeman. Uh, however, <laughs> all of these time slip incidents we have are only from Tom's column, and he doesn't give even the last names of the people they happen to. 
Has anyone pushed him further about these things, or does he just not talk about no, it? No, I think it's just a silly column, and nobody, nobody, uh, or his is... books. Although you know what, people have repeated these stories because I didn't find this first in the Liverpool Echo. I found it like in a blog that referenced a different blog that referenced a different blog. You didn't I... go straight to the Liverpool Echo when you were looking for time slip stories, Sean. I, I know. Well, I didn't realize Tom Sleeman was the master of the macabre. <laughs> so, in order, uh, Tom's written about three of these that I can find. He says that in 1996, a uh, an ex-cop named Frank headed to Waterstone's bookstore with his wife. Uh, Frank got held up talking to a buddy while his wife went ahead, so he uh, had to catch up alone. He was surprised to see the name Crips above the door. Where were the bloods? Not Waterstone's. Crips. C-R-I-P-P-S. A van suddenly swept behind him, honking. He turned around. Uh, that had the word Cardins on the side. Uh, and then... He looked around and, well, hold on a second, all the cars and people are old-timey now, like the 60s, 70s times. Hmm. And uh, as he walked toward the store some more, he could see umbrellas and handbags through the window. He could swear. Uh, and then there was a girl in modern clothing in the doorway. And uh, they both kind of went through more or less together. And she said to him, that's strange. I thought it was a new clothes shop. And left. He looked around and he was in the bookstore again with his wife. Well, she was just obviously in the wrong place anyway, because that's a bookstore, not a clothes shop that he was going to. Well, yeah, but in the old-timey flashback he had, it was a clothes store. So he's saying maybe she was in the same time slip he was. But she was back then, and she was... No, no, no. He sees her in the door. She's also in the time slip with him. He's in the 60s. He sees this girl. She's in modern clothes. Um, mm -hmm. and she the... walks out and looks back. And she goes, that's weird. I thought it was a clothing store. Huh. In 2007, we have a guy named Sean, S-E-A-N, just like me. Good uh, man. Described here as a drug user and petty criminal known oh. to the police. <laughs> yeah, I, I still see no difference. Sean was at the time shoplifting and running from a security guard when he turned into Brooks Alley. He mm. said he felt a sudden tightness in his chest and he was waiting for it to pass, but it didn't. Then he realized it wasn't him, it was a problem with the world around him. Sure. Typical man. Uh, the guard also hadn't come yet, so what the fuck? Mm -hmm. So leaving the alley, uh, he looked around. The cars looked very old-fashioned. He said there were streetlights where he didn't remember streetlights before, and there were some bushes growing near a bar he knew. <laughs> well, that's weird. He pulled out his <laughs> cell phone and got no signal. And then uh, Sean walked over to a newspaper kiosk, picked up a newspaper, and there saw May 18th, 1967. May 18th's my birthday, by the way. <laughs> happy birthday in the 60s as he's looking at it you can see the scene in a movie he speeds up his pace walking he's pulling out his phone again hands shaking he tries it again it works and sean looks around he's in the present again but turning back he saw that the part of the street he had just walked from people were still in the 60s over there that's wild and he said he uh didn't want to fuck around and investigate it anymore. He just ran home and nothing like that ever happened. Well, you'd be afraid of getting stuck there and then it would be, that would be a movie. Now, I know what you're thinking, Carrie. Of course, Tom Sleeman interviewed the security guard. Sure. And he said that Sean just disappeared literally into thin air as he was running down the alley. Well, I think the moral of all of these stories is don't go down weird alleys because you might go back in time well now in 2011 a teenager named imogen was shopping for her older sister who was about to be a new mother sleeman puts a ton of detail into these stories <laughs> Jeez. um 
and she saw a mother care, which I gather is a British chain for mom stuff. And she she go oh, a new location of mother care. She's very excited. This is very lucky. It was right on Lord and Whitechapel, which I apparently is a convenient location. <laughs> and she said, well, "This is great." Uh, she bought a polka dot bibs and a um, pink cardigan. Cute. She was shocked at how cheap they were. Figured it must be some kind of introductory rate because of the new location. <laughs> I was going to say, how would they know? But as she pulled out her credit card to pay, she got a weird look from the girl behind the counter who just asked for her manager. And the manager gave the card a look and looked at her over her glasses. Again, tons of dude. Tom should be writing novels. <laughs> um, and just says, we don't take those, love. Interesting. Now, when she went back to her mom, her mom said there used to be a mother care there, but it moved years ago. And she said, I know because I have an account at the HSBC that's there now. Hmm. And um, Imogen was like, no, I'm telling you, I was there today. And they went together and saw the HSBC branch sitting at the intersection. So she didn't get to buy anything like she didn't have any cash. So she had to leave the polka dot bibs and the pink card again. She did. So there was no proof. That's correct. Hmm. Tom Sleeman says based on the prices Imogen remembered, uh, she was likely sometime in the early 80s. Hmm. At which point there was a mother, uh, a mother care at that spot, which wouldn't have taken credit cards. Hmm. Interesting. Yep. So that's, again, I, I think this one is probably bullshit, but it's fun. I, I, I like this Tom Sleeman fella. Yeah. I mean, he weaves a tale, man. I, I wish there was more to it, like sources and... Last names. Facts that we could trace, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Um, but he's a good storyteller. You yeah. can at least give him that. This is where we had the one future time slip, too. I didn't, again, even take notes on it because it's so silly. Ooh, this is exciting, though. I want to know. Yeah, so Sleeman describes a Wednesday night in the Queensway Tunnel in 1957, uh, and a 44-year-old... Oh, we have a last name on this one. 44-year-old Jeff Kingsley was driving to Birkenhead. Don't know where that is. <laughs> uh, he said that around 11.45 p.m. he was driving in this tunnel... And something was approaching from behind him at high speed, and it looked like what he described as a sleek, ultra-modernistic vehicle. It was triangular with rounded edges, and it was gold all over. He said it bulleted right past his car at such a crazy speed that his um, car actually shook and was pulled sideways by the air being sucked out from beside it. Wow. And then the driver of the weird car um, turned straight into the wall of the tunnel leaving skid marks behind, but no explosion or uh, car corpse. It's a classic DeLorean thing where you just see the little flame, flame trail. trails and then it just disappears. Yes. Um, Weird. So the reason I didn't mention that one is because it's just so it's, obviously it's not true. it's just the car. But yeah. Yeah. That was it. <sighs> hey. But that's the, those are the Bold Street time slips, as they're called. So that's, that all centers around the area of Bold Street in Liverpool. So, um. Next time we're in Liverpool. Well, I was going to say, we need to take a little trip to uh, England and... Well, I think we need to do that anyway. You know, when people are allowed to travel again. Yeah, that. Um, but what do you think about time slips, Carrie? Do you think it's a possibility? I think there are some places where reality is just a little bit thinner. I genuinely think so, and... You know, I believe that a lot of um, 
spirits and things like that that people sense or see are just trapped energy. I believe in like very deeply in the fact that, you know, energy can't be killed. You know, a person can, but energy can't. It can only be transferred. And I believe that sometimes um, psychically we can make such an impact on a location that some of that energy just stays behind, even if it's not like a ghost or something like that. And then I think it's it's certainly a theory that time kind of is going on all the time. I know that sounds crazy. Sorry, what? <laughs> what, man? All the time is going on at the same time. So there is no technically no past, present, and future. Mm-hmm. Time is a flat circle. It's not a straight line with a beginning and an end. Is is a is a big theory, and I kind of subscribe to that. Sometimes, I mean, if if I think about it too hard, then I'm like, I I need to go to bed. Wibbly wobbly. Yeah, timey wimey. It's so wibbly wobbly. Um, but I think that that is a possibility, and and in these places where there is that kind of thinness of reality, I think something like that is possible. But I think for these stories specifically, there are just ways to explain it. I think you have the least way of explaining it away with the third one, the one from Strange But True. But there's also like no corroborating evidence besides these four people. And, you know, it's only known from this one TV show. So it's kind of a little harder to buy like... It's not like there's articles from 1979 of these people and then they were, you know, found by this TV show and interviewed. Well, that, that's the interesting thing. It's not like the, I mean, even with, um, even with spontaneous human combustion, you look that up and you can find cases and you can read about the, at least the names of. And scientific analysis. You know, various dozens of people who, yeah. who people think have been, um, if you go and if our audience goes and Google's uh, time slips, you can make that one word or two. Um, you know, you'll definitely read about the Versailles ladies. Uh, you'll definitely read about the Vanishing Hotel. Yeah. Uh, and you'll, you might, if you dig, you might find the boys who disappeared uh, on the patrol in England. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're probably going to run into... Mr. Sleeman? Yeah, Sleeman and his Bold Street time slips because those get reprinted in blogs all the time. Well, it's probably because he's he he spins a great tale, that Sleeman. He does. He does. But that leads me to believe... I just don't know if, if there are more convincing stories out there of this. They haven't been well publicized. Yeah. And I think there are postscripts to each of these that add... A little more confusion and suspicion to it like the lady becoming paranoid about a spy and turning her whole school into hysterical you know maniacs or well this whole town didn't have cables above it would be specifically behind so of course they didn't see anything or you know i think they all tom sleeman's never shown any evidence they all have things that kind of go against them so while i believe that maybe something like this is possible or at least encountering like a fragment of it whether it's some spirit or residual energy kind of living out its time in that place i don't know if um if i believe these stories prove that 
it's it's cool. I mean, it's it's interesting. I love the idea of going to, you know, I don't know, like George Washington's Mount Vernon or whatever, and turning a corner, and there's George Washington just chilling. I think that would be awesome. Play catch with him. Oh, so cool. But I don't think these stories are that. I'd love the chance to wrestle Abe Lincoln. I think he would win. I mean, I love you, Sean, and I think you're a, a very manly man, but I think Lincoln would win. He's in the Wrestling Hall of Fame. He won, I believe, over 300 matches and lost one in his uh, career. Yeah, exactly. So He's I think a very he would win. good wrestler. <laughs> so you want your ass kicked by Abe Lincoln is what you're saying. Yeah. He's got the reach on me. <laughs> For sure. I think that's why he won so much. Just all those <laughs> all those arms and legs. The wiry guy. Um, so what do you think? Oh, I think it's all bullshit, but it is it is fun. I, Do you I think any love... of these people believe their stories? Yes, I actually think those ladies who wrote the book don't have much reason to lie. I don't think they got rich off of it. And certainly, if someone found out who they really were when they published their book, they could have lost their jobs. Yeah, I, I think the boys um, who, when they were men, decided they had uh, gone back into the 1500s or They could whatever. have been genuine. They uh, were just mistaken, maybe. 100%. I think... Um, I think Tom Sleeman's lie a liar, but he's not a malicious one. Um, and then those, the 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 couples in France, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. I think they're bad navigators. <laughs> well, certainly the the British apparently keep on just traveling back in time instead of to their intended location. You've been on road trips with me. Can you picture me losing a hotel and never being able to find it again if we were in a foreign country? Hundred percent. You lose your phone every day. Thank in you. In the house. We'll be right back. (laughs) On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. You're here, which means you love podcasts. But are you looking for another kind of entertainment on the go? Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to memoirs, news, business, and more. By signing up for a free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash scary, you'll receive access to thousands of titles with one credit toward any audiobook and two Audible originals, free during your trial and then with subscription each month after. Personally, my favorite Audible title is also my favorite book, It by Stephen King. I went into this audiobook ready to judge because I've loved this novel since I was a kid, but between the stellar production value and the truly breathtaking narration performance by actor Stephen Weber, I was 100% all in. If you like this podcast and have a strong stomach, I think you will be too. Not into audiobooks? 
no problem. With podcasts, theatrical performances, guided meditations, and more, Audible offers something for everyone. So what are you waiting for? Get started now. And hey, you'll be helping support the podcast. Visit our link at www.audibletrial.com slash ain't it scary for a free trial. That's www.audibletrial.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y. Audible. Listen more. This week, we're back to the Bizarre Bazaar for a follow-up on the Utah monolith mystery. The Bizarre Bazaar. This is where we talk about haunted, cursed, and otherwise weird objects. And places and just anything bizarre. All right. <laughs> Sell it to me. Last episode, we reported that a Utah Division of Wildlife Resources helicopter had come upon a 12-foot-high metal monolith in the middle of the southeastern Utah desert. That's right. The, two, the 2001, except it was um, from an impressionist German film. <laughs> exactly. It was discovered by intrepid internet investigators that the monolith must have been placed between summer 2015 and fall 2016, and that the Utah Department of Public Safety had no idea where it came from, because this is a remote area of federally owned lands. Well, the monolith has disappeared. What? <laughs> yep. It's not in the Utah desert anymore. No one has been proven to have left the monolith initially, but according to a photographer taking photos of the monolith the night of November 27th, soon after the structure shot to viral fame, four men arrived and began giving the monolith hard shoves. What? They then pushed it in the opposite direction, trying to uproot it. According to the photographer, one of the men said, quote, this is why you don't leave trash in the desert, suggesting that he viewed the monolith as an eyesore on the landscape. Ah. The sculpture then popped out and landed on the ground with a bang. The men then broke it apart and took it away in a wheelbarrow. Where can I see this video? There is no video of this. There is. He took some blurry photos of the men doing this, but you can't see faces or anything. And the photographer said, as they walked off with the pieces, one of them said, leave no trace. But Sean, that's not where the story ends. Does that mean they left a trace? <laughs> well, it depends, no, because... Did, did, when they said leave no trace, do you think they meant, like, leave no evidence of our passing here? It must be a secret that we killed this monolith? Or, <laughs> or did they mean, like, because that's what you're supposed to do when you camp, is leave no trace? I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> Another monolith has been found. What? One that looks much like the Utah monolith. But this time it was found in Romania. Great. <laughs> On Batka Dom Domine Hill in the city of Piatra Nimt in northern Romania, in fact. Is it similar or is it the same? Can I see? <laughs> yeah, look it up. Look up Romanian monolith. You have the computer right there. Now, this couldn't be the same monolith because this one was found November 26th, which is one day before the mysterious foursome took away the Utah structure. Also, there's another couple of differences. The metal of the Romanian monolith has many small kind of swirling circles on it, as if someone did a terrible job polishing it and actually scratched it up. <laughs> it also seems to be about a foot taller than the Utah one. The Romanian monolith faces Mount 
Chilau, I'm not sure, one of the most famous mountains in Romania, and it's listed as one of the seven natural wonders of the country. So people are there a lot. Mm-hmm. A Nimt culture and heritage official said, we have started looking into the strange appearance of the monolith. It is on private property, but we still don't know who the monolith's owner is yet. It is in a protected area on an archaeological site. Before installing something there, they need permission from our institution, one that must then be approved by the Ministry of Culture. And of course, no permission was sought or given. So have they taken it down yet? Uh, As far as I know, it's still there. No one quite knows still who's responsible for the Utah monolith, and no one has claimed placing its Romanian brother. So for now, it remains a mystery. Well, that's very exciting. You know, it... It goes to show you the impact you can have just by leaving some shit in a place. Exactly. Some people think it might be an art installation. This Romanian thing kind of adds a new bugaboo into it, makes it interesting. You know, is it a copycat? Is it the same person? Who knows? I love mysterious art. It's like those um, bricks in New York. Toynbee tiles. Mm -hmm. I'll definitely do an episode on those sometime. Those are very cool. And yeah, it's kind of similar, except there's no text to it whatsoever. There's j- the monolith is the statement. And that's a very interesting thing. Yeah. Good on you, Moon Man. <laughs> that's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful. See you next Thursday. Thanks for listening. And this show was created by Sean McCabe and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. This has been a production of Longboy Media. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty, and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts.